Afghan peace deal draws nearer, but what will be sacrificed to get US troops home? Plus, do personnel numbers matter anymore? And did Donald Trump really try to buy Greenland? There are people inside the cabinet, inside the Congress, that know the president's unstable and incompetent, and that's obvious. It is 18 years since NATO first moved into Afghanistan and within days it's possible the US could agree a deal with the Taliban that will see its troops come home. But such as the desperation in Washington to end the conflict, questions have emerged about exactly what it is they're agreeing to. The White House reportedly wants a deal in place within days after talks between the US and representatives of the Taliban in Qatar. Well, Carl Eikenberry is a former US general who's also a former US ambassador to Afghanistan. I think the effort on the United States is one to make it happen quickly. I think the Secretary of State uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, recently said still a hope of reaching an agreement by September the uh, 1st. But it, it begs so many questions. Uh, even if we get that agreement, is is the government of Afghanistan with this uh, subsequent intra-Afghan dialogue, which gets agreed to, can the government of Afghanistan even bring a unified team to the table? Their, their politics remain very fractious and uh, riven with intra-ethnic disputes. They have a schedule now, a September 28th Afghan presidential election. Well, if an agreement is reached here in the next few weeks, then what's going to be the state of that election? Are the Taliban agreeing to the election to go forward? Are they going to participate in it? Uh, third is, will Taliban, even with an agreement with the United States, it, it appears that they have battlefield momentum. About 15% of the country is under their control. 30% is being contested. It appears the Afghan police and the army are uh, suffering from declining morale. So won't the Taliban have an incentive, whatever the agreement with the United States, to keep pressing forward on the battlefield? Well, Christina Lamb is the chief foreign correspondent of the Sunday Times. She's been speaking to the Taliban's chief negotiator in Qatar, and she says the deadline may make things even harder. Everybody wants peace for Afghanistan. People are desperate. You know, all sides are fed up. It's a very young population. Most people have only known war in Afghanistan. But is this a genuine possibility of peace? I think everything should be done towards trying to get peace. You needed to bring the Taliban to the table. They've not been defeated on the, the battlefield despite all of the the money and troops. You know, at one point there are 150,000 NATO troops there. So they needed to be brought in. But, you know, can you really genuinely believe that they're committed to peace or are they agreeing to this because they want the foreign troops to leave and then they just take over? I'm worried about how narrow this is because, you know, at one point when people first talked about having a peace deal, there was, you know, all this talk about how we must safeguard the rights for women and all these things that have been hard won over the last years. Those things are not being talked about now. The main priority is absolutely getting the troops out. Of course, you know, there's an election in the US next year. And the real challenge will be that after this peace deal is signed, which, you know, is supposed to be you know, within the next week or so, then there will be talks with the Afghan government. And, I've, you know, quite <laughs> rightly, I you know, feel rather aggrieved about all of this. 
And again, talking to the Taliban, they said, as far as they're concerned, that that's a puppet government. It's not a legitimate government. And they think that the delegation from the other side, which would be about 15 people, should only have one or two people from the Afghan government. They then named a lot of other people that they thought should be involved who are warlords like Gorbadin Hekmatia, who most Afghans hold responsible for all of the damage or much of the damage that has been done in the first place. Christina Lamb from the Sunday Times will join me in the studios, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Donald Trump clearly wants to, as Christina said, get US forces out before the 2020 election. Does that mean he's willing to cut almost any deal to hit that deadline? Well, he can't cut any deal unless you get the other two lots to agree. One of the distinctions of Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan after 18 years, it is an internecine war. It is about different groups within Afghanistan itself. Also, it has to be guaranteed by, for example, Pakistan. And in Pakistan, there is a yet another internecine war between the military intelligence and the politicians, led by, um, uh, be- led by two groups which say we should get an agreement under any cost. Now, that's where, uh, that's where Donald Trump cannot resolve this. What he can do is to come to an agreement, which is really a truce. It's not an agreement. It's not a deal. There are 38 headings in any deal that they've been talking about in, in, in the Middle East. And in those 38 headings, they include such things of what happens to different people, who do you have an agreement with, who can actually govern, who can actually not govern. And when you consider, for example, that on the 28th of next month, there is an election in Afghanistan, which is far more important than the election in the United States, because it's happening now, and it will control the future of Afghanistan for another sort of four years, or two years, certainly. Mm. Um, There is no way in which he can say, right, well, I'm going to do it anyway. It's not rather like Brexit, where you say, well, it's a no deal or it's a deal. Can you imagine, though, without foreign troops, the Taliban coexisting peacefully with Afghanistan's current political rulers? I mean, we heard Christina talking about the other people that the Taliban were insisting were involved in the negotiations. Well, what's more, you know, can you imagine, you say, can you imagine the Taliban coexisting peacefully? Uh, Can you imagine... What do you think the Taliban really wants? uh, The Taliban wants a certain group to control, uh, which, for them and that Taliban are leaders eventually to sort of take over. You've got to remember where Taliban started. The word Taliban means student. It is, a, it is a moral distinction, or was a moral distinction at the beginning in this Afghan war, that it was Taliban student. It was their, their hopes, their sort of hopes that you'd say any other group with that sort of name has got. The Afghanistans themselves and the different, uh, the different groups in Afghanistan, the two major groups, uh, don't go along with this, don't get this. And also because you, somebody says, well, you know, but what's, where, where do you come from? Which tribes do you come from? Uh, which province do you come from, etc.? There is no reason to believe that, uh, that what Trump wants is anything more than to get out. Uh, to bring his troops home because he said, I and will are bring they, them are back. They right? Are they right on that? Are they right to want to do that? No, to, to, to assume that's all he wants. Um, yeah, I think that's that is that's his ma- that's his main task, and there are a lot of people within the within the military, uh, and some of them have been 
have not had great careers in North in, in in Afghanistan, but there are a lot of people in the military who say we cannot do that. The idea that we would just abandon Afghanistan, and then you come back to another <clears throat> aspect of it, and that was what happens to the American because of the coalition of the willing, willing that actually went there with Afghanistan, like the British Army, for example. You just kind of, we've we've got uh, in I think in about ten days' time two paragraphs in. To, to, to Afghanistan. And two power goes into Afghanistan with part of its job is actually to protect Afghans, mm. to protect the leadership. It's like the British will be the last to leave, isn't it? Uh, I don't know about that, but the point is you cannot just pull out, mm. uh, say, uh, say 10,000-plus uh, 10, people and expect somebody with just sort of 500 uh, to field um, anything else but uh, exposed. And under these talks, if there are not commitments on key issues like women's rights, um, some people will be asking what was the point of being in, in Afghanistan in the first place, what's been achieved exactly? I think a lot of people might ask that anyway. And it's also, especially amongst the school of, of Asiatic uh, 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 students, who say that in these circumstances, it's, it is better to insist that the people there sort their own problem. The days of imperial intervention to do it are long over because we all know the consequences when you want to get out. Christopher Lee, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, some big challenges for world leaders at the G7 summit with Iran, Hong Kong and arms control all on the agenda. And Donald Trump scraps a state visit because Denmark won't sell him Greenland. So did he really want to buy it? GFBS Sit rep. There are few surprises in the latest figures on the strength of Britain's armed forces. The army is still more than 7,000 short of its target figure and all the services are under strength. But is a bigger problem the inability to retain people who've already been recruited? And is this even the best way to assess the strength of a modern military? Well, let's talk now to Michael Evans, former Defence and Pentagon correspondent for The Times. Hello, Michael. Um, After all the criticism of Capita's handling of recruitment, the MOD has now signed a contract with Deloitte that's been announced today. What do you understand this contract will do exactly? Well, hopefully they'll do um, considerably better than Capita, who uh, struggled really for for years to to try and get the recruitment sorted out. Uh, The delays were ridiculous, and as as a result of the delays, people who wanted to join the army found it just too long to wait and went off and did something else. So I think under the the new uh, system, they will cut down on the on the, the time it takes to be recruited uh, and, and launch a new system which will uh, try and encourage young people uh, to join the armed forces. Because yep. This is obviously uh, one of the major problems and challenges facing uh, the Ministry of Defence at the moment. Yeah, and Michael, recruitment is actually increasing, but the retaining of personnel is becoming an increasing headache. Why is that? I think it's, I mean, it, it, to a certain extent, there's always been a, re- a retention problem, but it, it's the same now because we're in a totally different world, and there are uh, there are people who uh, acquire great skills and they can earn a lot more money by going elsewhere. So they get their three or four years, whatever it is, with the with the army, uh, and then they leave uh, for a higher paid job. 
I mean, I don't think that there is that sort of devotion to stay in the army for 20 to 20, 22 years. I don't think that's there anymore. I think people go to the army, do three or four years, and then out, out into the big wide world. Mm. Christopher Lee is with us still. Christopher, I suppose then the, the chief of the defence staff increasingly talking about part-time recruits, perhaps recruiting people back on a part-time basis who've already served in the military, including a new cyber posts. It's quite a sensible solution. Well, it's a solution for maybe, but for a very, very small part. I mean, there here is here a bigger subject, and that is why is it that people, by and large, why is it people, by and large, are less likely to want to join the armed forces? And then you have to look at the armed forces and say, well, what do they do when they get there? Um, is it likely to keep them? And the answer is, as Michael says, it's always been a case that a lot of them want to move on. If you go to the RAF. Look at the RAF advertisements now. They're they're advertising for techies. You've got to keep airplanes in the sky, and these are the guys that will do it. And what happens after they've done their three-year apprenticeship in in the RAF? Um, Then you get some aircraft company down Mm. the road at Bristol, Mm. call them up and say, come for twice the money. Mm. And I think that's the realism. I think where we're reaching now, and it's not going to be for Nick Carter, General Carter, to decide. I think it'll be something which will come slowly, Let's decide whether we want to use the military for something quite different, Mm. something else, because that's what we will have to do. And also, as Michael says, the world is changing. And maybe the way we use our our forces is going to be far more in line of what sort of forces we can put together. Yes, Michael Evans, on on that note, General Snickcart in a recent interview was was questioning whether the raw personnel numbers are necessarily the best measure of military capability when you are bringing in more autonomous unmanned technology and new technologies. Well, of course he's right. I I can remember a a general, I don't know how many years ago, uh, showing some imagination saying that, you know, the future is all about autonomy and drones and unmanned vehicles and all that. Um, and here we are in this world, and of course we have to grab it uh, and make use of it and exploit this uh, fantastic new technology that's available, and it inevitably will mean uh, fewer, fewer personnel. I mean, I think that's the way it is, but more than anything else, you need uh, top people like uh, General Nick Carter and others with imagination and, and looking, for, looking to the future. It's very difficult when you want to hang on to the you know, dwindling army that we've already got, 82,000, but you know, down by 7,000, as you said earlier. Uh, it's, it's difficult to, to, conce- to conceive of a smaller army. But the fact is, the money, which is limited, obviously, has got to be spent now more and more on this very fancy technology, which will keep us uh, either abreast of or ahead of our uh, potential enemies. And also the ironmongery, like, you know, two carriers, and you can't even find enough sailors to put one of them to sea on an operational basis uh, to all the the frigates and uh, that we're saying we're going to, uh, or the defence ministers say they're going to get. Here's another side of this, isn't it? Um, is this a military, or is it a political, or who is having to rethink how to solve this problem? And the first question that has to come is from the... uh, political side of it. Please, government, you must tell the military what they expected to do, what your policy is in in, in the world today. And therefore, the military can tell you whether they can provide the operational detail that will guarantee your policy. Now, that's a much bigger job 
much bigger job and is the one that's going to decide perhaps the the future but, of w- what the United Kingdom can and cannot do in the world. But Michael Evans, um, taking that into account then, if you have recruitment targets set as they are, at the moment we're not hitting them. Um, does it matter? Presumably those recruitment targets were set based on what you want the military to do. Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, they, they decided a long time ago that 82,000 was the figure they wanted. Um, and uh, there is no one, either in government or in the Minister of Defence, who's saying uh, we, wanted, we want a, a, a reduced capacity. We want to have 72,000, not 82,000. So there, there's a muddle. I mean, I don't think... I mean, I agree with... Do they not know how many they really want, then? Well, I think, I think it is... To be honest, it is very difficult to predict the future, but that's why you need people with uh, very good brain power to say, let's stop mucking around. Let us say this is the sort of armed forces which we are going to be able to provide to protect this country and to play a a major contribution uh, towards NATO and other organizations. Uh, Does it need 82,000 or does it need, uh, you know, these cyber soldiers that uh, Nick Carter is talking about? Well, you know, someone has got to make some decisions. The trouble is we've had so many strategic reviews and all of them have either uh, run out of money or they've been overtaken by events. And uh, that's why we need some good, straight thinking. And to be honest, I don't think it's there in the political uh, sphere at the moment. Michael Evans, stay with us. Now, the defining image of last year's G7 summit in Canada was of Donald Trump sat with his arms folded as world leaders stood over him. He was so angry he refused to sign the summit's communique, something that's never happened before. So this weekend's gathering in France should be interesting, with Iran and the risk of a new arms race potentially at the top of the agenda. Uh, Michael Evans, there's a big gap between the US and other members of the G7 on Iran. Does the seizing of that British tanker boost Trump's case that Iran can't be trusted? Um well, yes. I, I, I was reading somewhere the other day that uh, the G7 is now uh, G6 plus one or even G7 minus one, which pretty well sums up uh, how the G7 is, is uh, looked at from Washington and from uh, Donald Trump. Uh, there is a, you know, uh, there's still a major challenge for all the other leaders of the G7 to uh, in, when they deal with uh, the President Trump, but I think they've had a they've had a year, as it were, to get used to it, and uh, and they're perhaps uh, more able to deal with this uh, unpredictable president. But Iran is now a major, major issue, and it's it, it's a complete uh, divisive issue as far as uh, uh, the West is concerned, because uh, America is the only one that has stood out and 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 left and withdrawn from the the nuclear deal and the tankers uh, issue is now a major issue too because uh, they want uh, strong uh, powerful uh, action being taken against Iran and uh, the illegal uh, oil oil exports and uh, they're not really getting the sort of support they want so I Mm. think all this will be raised at the G7 summit. And for Boris Johnson his first big international summit as Prime Minister do you think he'll shift position on Iran and try and get closer to Donald Trump? Well, I think I think he's already close to Donald Trump. I mean, I think they've had three or four phone calls just in the last week or so. I suppose I mean in terms of the Iran nuclear deal well, in particular. Yes, exactly. But I, I, I mean, I think it would be quite extraordinary if uh, the UK suddenly said, uh, we agree with, uh, with the Trump administration on the 2015 nuclear deal and we are now going to withdraw as well. I think, to be quite honest, I know we've got the Brexit problems and leaving the EU, but... Uh, we still have to have a very close partnership with our EU uh, uh, 
uh, our EU allies, and, and I, I cannot see Boris Johnson, just for the sake of uh, buttering up Donald Trump, uh, saying that he's now going to support the withdrawal and, uh, uh, and go against uh, our EU partners and the other partners who are still trying to hang on to the, uh, the 2015 deal. Mm. Christopher. There's uh, something else to remember, and that is that um, many members of the EU are also members of NATO, and so there's cross-fertilization in the politics. And the Iran, in theory, is as much a, a NATO responsibility as it is a, uh, an EU responsibility. And therefore, I think it, it leans the British to sort of, at a time when they really don't want there to be a European army or a European defense treaty uh, uh, separate from NATO, it, 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 it behoves the, the British to sort of lean towards the European view rather than anything else. Mm. Uh, just to move to another part of the world, the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, do you think they're going to be closer to any unity on their approach to that, Christopher? What, at the G7? Mm. Uh, I don't think so. There's not, I mean, the best thing to do is what they're doing, and that's staying out of it. I mean, it was surprising that the, um, that the, the Chinese supposedly put in people with American and British flags in, in, in into the crowd uh, so that they could actually say that the British ought to stay out of this. It is a remarkable thing that's going on there. It's much bigger than, say, that what went on in Paris. It's bigger than what's been going on in Moscow recently. But it will resolve itself because uh, China is not going to take an intervention position on this because actually in practice what can you do? So you just stand back and say, look, we really don't want to get involved in this and that's where the G7, there isn't anybody in the G7 who would want to even touch this or even mention Hong Kong. Mm. Uh, Michael Evans, uh, Vladimir Putin won't be in Biarritz this week. He said there is no G7 uh, but how will the leaders respond to the fracturing of the medium range nuclear treater, uh, treaty, particularly, I mean we know there's been this meeting today between uh, China and Russia uh, over the US test firing a cruise missile last weekend. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's a very serious uh, uh, period we're in at the moment. I mean, the obviously the Americans have been accusing the Russians for a long time of breaching the treaty, which is why they've withdrawn from it. Uh, I think NATO supports that in the sense that uh, NATO agrees that Russia was was breaching the treaty. But now we have, you know, the, as you said, the the testing of an intermediate. Uh, range uh, cruise missile, and I think it's extremely worrying uh, that uh, if they continue to do that and will then deploy these systems, presumably, uh, what uh, what Moscow will do? And Moscow chatting to China. China's already, from way back, has already warned against uh, the installation of any of these sort of weapons within uh, in the in the Asia Pacific region. So I think it's leading up to a great challenge. And I think the I think the rest of NATO, and I think the G7. Uh, summit leaders will all be very wary of this of this subject. All right, Michael Evans, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today. Now, you'd have thought after two and a half years we would have got used to Donald Trump doing and saying odd things. But this week, the suggestion that the United States could buy Greenland is still pretty stunning, as was his decision to scrap a state visit to Denmark after its prime minister called the idea absurd. Wow. For some, the whole row is amusing. Trump's former communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, is wondering whether he's fit to remain in office. There are people inside the cabinet, inside the Congress that know the president's unstable and incompetent. And that's obvious. If you watch a prize fight, 
we're in the 12th round. He's still standing, but he's punch drunk. You know, we got to get him into the corner here and throw some water on him. I mean, this is absolutely unmitigatedly ridiculous. Well, let's speak to Elizabeth Braw from the Modern Defense De- Modern Deterrence Program at the Royal United Services Institute. Elizabeth, good to speak today. Absolutely ridiculous, says a man formerly close to Trump. Why would the president ever have thought this was a sensible idea? Well, Greenland is a strategic location, clearly, but uh, I think uh, his... Uh, proposition has a lot to do with him wanting to deflect from something else that he doesn't want us to discuss and lo and behold he now has us discussing Greenland uh, so uh, he has clearly achieved his objective mm, It's home to a US base so arguably a logical case for this though Yes, but we should remember the U.S. Uh, armed forces have bases all over the world, including, for example, uh, Germany and France. And, and uh, nobody would suggest that, that the U.S. Uh, should buy mm. parts of Germany or France as a result. But and, and it, there is also uh, an additional aspect, which is that these days we just don't buy territories from one another anymore. Uh, the U.N. protects the rights uh, of indigenous peoples and uh, and uh, Greenland is inhabited by indigenous and indigenous people. So uh, Greenlanders uh, should deci- decide for themselves. It's not for the uh, Danish government to decide, which is something that the prime minister has made clear. So, Elizabeth, you know, what do you think this whole episode is designed to detract attention from? Well... Trump's financial uh, dealings are obviously the subject of, of uh, investigations in the U.S., and he seems to be desperate to to focus on anything other than than uh, his business dealings. And um, so Greenland, yes, I mean, you could make the case that it's a strategic location that, that he's right to bring up the issue, but uh, the U.S. has had its base there for, for a number of years there and, and operated in close cooperation with Denmark, which is not just any country, it's a close ally, and yet he sees it fit to... to uh, not just uh, bring up the issue, but then also severely damage U.S. relations with Denmark uh, mm. over this issue. And, and we should remember the U.S. ambassador to Denmark clearly had no idea this was coming. She tweeted um, uh, uh, just before he, he he tweeted that he was no longer coming. She, she tweeted flags uh, of the U.S. and Danish flags and, and saying that she was very much looking forward to the visit. So this is clearly something that he thought up um, in in, uh, so, in I mean, it's his, all, his lonely chamber. It's, it's also a good <laughs> it's a good way of, of getting out of a visit to Denmark if you've got Barack Obama going there around the same time, isn't it? That's right. And but both the suggestion of wanting to buy Greenland and then the the abrupt cancellation of, of his visits um, are, are part of of this package of of deflecting from mm-hmm. something else, mm-hmm. and, and and unfortunately it will damage. Uh, relations between two very close allies, which we shouldn't forget Denmark was uh, a a staunch ally of the US, has been in in Afghanistan, has lost uh, a number of soldiers to the war in Afghanistan, is one of few countries to put few caveats on its uh, engagement in Afghanistan, where other countries uh, refused to send infantry uh, and refused to do very much at all that that involved any sort of danger. Denmark was actually um, a very good ally to the US and and lost soldiers as a result. Christopher Lee is here in the studio with me. Christopher, do you think serious has been damage has been done in the way that the US conducts foreign policy by what Donald Trump has done this week? What about about Greenland? No, yeah, not yeah. at all. Um, the Danes have their own view of Donald Trump. 
The Danes have their own view of how things might go, and the Danes are not going to be messed about, as the Prime Minister she showed. Um, what happens is this. Donald Trump was due to arrive there on September the 2nd in, in Denmark for a state visit. And so what happens is that his office, the private office, and the State Department get together, and they produce a briefing for him, which they gave him the briefing about 10 days ago on this is where you're going, this is the extent, these are the sort of subjects you might want to talk about, etc. And Greenland was in that uh, briefing. Note. Greenland was 11B on his, uh, on, on his iPad. Um, and it said about Greenland... 11B. Uh, 11B. <laughs> that's the way it was. It wasn't big stuff. Anyway, it's always said about uh, Greenland. We have, we have uh, the runway system and the command and control system and the air defence target acquisition. Uh, so it's a big operation there. And it doesn't come... <clears throat> it comes under Omaha, Nebraska, so we don't have to worry about it secure. And then they said this. There's also the question of climate change. And climate change in Greenland means the disappearance of the permafrost. And you get rid of the permafrost and you can start to get to all the very valuable ores and, and, and things that we would like to have some interest in. The other part of it, you get rid of the permafrost and you start to soften up the northern coast mm. of, of Greenland. And there you can put a standby uh, small boats uh, port in there. You can even have a submarine uh, a section up there, and this is what they were telling him. Mm. Now, these are things that might come up, and these are things that you know we will make so, come up. So there you are. That was it. He then said something like that, uh, which wasn't that we're going to buy it, but hey, there it is. We might buy it. Um, and she said that's absurd. And uh, if they meet up next time, it'll be okay. And there we will have to leave it for today. Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for your time today. That is all for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're on the line, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. 